As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is your child asking questions on their homework that you don't feel equipped to answer? Is your child just struggling with a specific subject or need help with their homework? If you're dealing with any of these issues, you could maybe benefit from IXL. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. And it's so cost effective. A single hour of tutoring costs more than a month of IXL. I could have totally used IXL when I was in grade school. I was always having trouble with my homework. Ugh, I wish I had this when I was a kid. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And How To Be Fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com fine. Visit IXL.com fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. IXL.com fine. Hey, by the book listeners, Kristen here. Did you know that you can receive a weekly by the book affirmation mini plus the rules of every book that we've lived by? It's easy. All you have to do is become a member of our Patreon community. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash listen to buy the book. Again, that's patreon.com slash listen to buy the book, or just look at the episode description from today's show. The following podcast contains barnyard language and some adult content. So, maybe listen on headphones if you're at work or around small children. Now, here's the show. Hey, Kristen. Yeah, Jolenta. Remember when we lived by Why Men Love Bitches? Uh, of course. How could I forget? <laughs> it was all about how to hold your own in a relationship by keeping your man on his toes and maybe manipulating him. Right, right. And there was a lot of questionable advice in that book, <laughs> like like you just mentioned. Yes. But there was one part we agreed with the author on, and that was that women should aim for financial independence. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the author didn't actually explain how to do that, though, in that book. Mm -mm. <laughs> she just said, be it. Um, <laughs> but lucky for us, we have someone with us today who's here to teach us all about how to do that. Oh, well, I want to talk with her. Well, we're going to because I'm Jalanta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is By the Book. That's right. It is time for another Buy the Book bonus episode, our between seasons treat for your ears. And today we are talking with Tori Dunlap, author of Financial Feminist, Overcome the Patriarchy's Bullshit to Master Your Money and Build a Life You Love. She also hosts the Financial Feminist podcast 
and she is the founder of Her First 100K, a financial education program that's served millions of people. Tori, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. (laughs) We are so excited to have you. And we have so many questions for you about yourself, about financial freedom as feminists. First and foremost, let's start with your backstory. Um, You successfully saved $100,000 by the age of 25. You then quit your corporate job to work full-time helping other women feel more financially confident How, 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 how did you save those six figures at such a young age? Because at 25, I was not doing that. (laughs) There was a lot of pieces to the puzzle. So the first is that I grew up having parents who taught me about money. And I thought that that Mm. was a given. I thought that that was so normal. I thought everybody knows not to overspend on credit cards. Everybody knows how to save money. And of course, I realized high school, college, when I was starting to navigate my own life and talking to other people, that that was not a normal thing and, in fact, a privilege. And that extended with I had parents who were frugal and were able to save a little bit of money for my college. So I was working three jobs while I was in school. I was you know, getting a bunch of money in merit scholarships. I also had parents who diligently saved for my college. And so We were meeting as a family, I think, every semester going, okay, can we get through this one without taking on loans? So I managed to graduate college debt-free, which was a massive privilege, and I would not have hit that 100K as quickly as I did if I had had student loans. So that's something I like to acknowledge right off the top. The other things are the things, some of the things I teach about in the book, the first being mindful spending. A lot of people hear my 100K at 25 story and they go, okay, well, you ate oatmeal and you didn't leave your house. And I'm like, no, I live in Seattle, which is a pretty high cost of living area. I lived by Mm -hmm. myself. I didn't live at home. I managed to travel internationally during that time. And so there was a balance that I had to find between, you know, uh, saving for future me, but also making sure that I was having fun. There's a lot of deprivation that comes with a lot of traditional personal finance advice that A, I didn't want any part of personally, and B, did not want to teach. So value-based spending is something that I really focused on. I was also automating my savings. And if there's one thing you take away from my advice, like you can automate almost everything in your financial life, including your savings. You can say, okay, I want X percent of my paycheck, you know, uh, twice a month, taken out of my checking account and put into a savings account. It happens without you even having to think about it. And we call it in the personal finance industry, quote, paying yourself first. So that was Mm. something I did as well. I also started investing really early. Um, Women on average wait to invest compared to men or don't invest at all because we're told it's not for us. We're told it's scary. These are also Mm. narratives I talk about in the book. But I started investing with a Roth IRA when I was 21 and did everything I could to max that out every year. And so there was a lot of components to that 100K, but really the biggest thing I took from it was this sense of total confidence and ownership. Because when I had money in the bank, I had choices. I had options. I had the ability, and I tell this again story in the book, to leave a toxic situation I didn't want to be in anymore because I had money to do so. I was able to start this business that is now, you know, a global business changing people's lives. I'm able to donate to causes I believe in. I'm able to go out on a date and analyze if I actually want to date this person for their character rather than how much money (laughs) they do or do not have, right? 
And so that was really the big thing that I realized is when I had my financial shit together, everything else in my life became so much easier and I could use money as a tool to change the world and to to make the change I wanted to see. And that for me is the mission of financial feminism, which is protect Mm. yourself, put your oxygen mask on first, make sure you're taken care of, and then you could use money as a tool to start affecting everything else. I love all of that, but I got to say a lot of us, me included, We come from low-income or working-class backgrounds. We were first-generation college graduates. We're currently way, way older than 25. It's been a long time since I was 25. (laughs) In other words, it is way too late for any of us, that's the vast majority of Americans, to achieve what you did at the age that you achieved it at. What words of reassurance do you have for the rest of us who feel like, oh, fuck, it's too late. We can't do what you did? I appreciate you saying that because... Uh, that is, I mean, I am a woman, definitely, and there's there's so many things that I've encountered that a straight white man hasn't. But I also am white. I'm cisgendered. I grew up with family, you know, a very stable family upbringing. And my parents had very, very little, especially my dad. And so I think their commitment to financial education for me was, we did not have this. How can we hopefully impact, you know, our kid, our daughter? And mm-hmm. so... I think the vast majority of people, especially in the United States, are going, how the fuck do I navigate this thing that seems to constantly forget about me, right? If you're a member of any marginalized group, you are feeling this way almost constantly, right? If you're a woman, if you're a person of color, (laughs) if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, if you're disabled, right? Unfortunately, it shouldn't be as novel as it is, but there's so much reassurance that happens in the personal finance community when you acknowledge systemic oppression, And it shouldn't be novel, but so many financial experts are still in 2022 telling you, if you're not rich, you are not working hard enough, right? Mm -hmm. It's classic Mm -hmm. bootstraps narrative. And the truth is, is that your personal choices make up about 20% of the personal finance equation and the systemic oppression makes up 80%, the racism, the ableism, the sexism, the lack of government support. So the first thing is to just offer yourself a shit ton of grace and understanding that one, you were never taught this. Two, you're in a system built by and for a certain group of people, cisgendered straight white men. Mm-hmm. And if you are not a member of that group, automatically things are going to be difficult for you. And then Kristen, to your point, you know, I, we have so many members of our community who are first gen or immigrant or did not have any sort of understanding about how to navigate this system. And their parents didn't either. So the first thing is to just offer yourself so much grace and understanding. The second thing is that hope is not lost, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I think that um, we as women often think, if I cannot do something perfectly, then I'm not going to do it at all. Like, what's the point? We may not think in those terms, but like, that's what's happening, which is, I don't know how to invest and I am worried about making a a mistake, so I'll figure it out in six months when I have more time. And we're busy. And so, of course, in six months, six months goes by and nothing happens, right? And the truth is, I would rather you try to financially educate yourself or, you know, seek out places of financial education, like potentially, you know, our work or other people's work, and do your best than not try at all right? $1,000 saved Mm -hmm. is better than nothing in savings, right? Or something saved for retirement is better than nothing saved for retirement. So hope is not lost, right? I would rather get to the end of my life and have, let's say, $100,000 saved, even if it took me 30 years to do so, than no money at all. Um, And I think the last thing 
is the reason we talk about financial feminism in the way that we do, it is not enough to just learn how to budget and understand what an index fund is. The support that is truly going to change people's lives and actually put money into their bank accounts is the kind of governmental support that we need to see with voting and protesting and policy change and all of mm-hmm. the the kind of big sweeping things that have to happen in order to make our society more equitable. And the idea is, um, I was talking to friends and fellow finance experts, they are rich and regular, that's their brand name. And we were talking about this of like, how can you pursue wealth under capitalism, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> how can you, how yeah. can you reckon with that? <laughs> I mean, and the the kind of the kind of thing that I've come to, and uh, it was a huge struggle when I was writing this book because capitalism. I don't want to win capitalism because that means I've probably exploited somebody somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I also can't lose capitalism because that means deep suffering for myself and others, right? And unless you're like pulling a like Discovery Channel show where you're living in Alaska off the grid, like you are a participant in capitalism. And while we work to change the system, you have to survive. You have to figure that out. And so unless you completely opt out, which for the vast majority of us is not feasible nor enjoyable, like you have to understand how to navigate it. So if we look at like our personal finance journey as like a mountain, and this is what my friends at Richard Regular, kind of the metaphor they came up with, if, if we can get members of marginalized group as far up the mountain as possible, then I can help somebody else navigate that mountain right? Mm -hmm. Like I can help them. Oh, yep. There's, you know, if you take that path, you're going to get lost or you shouldn't talk to that person because they're going to lead you a different way up the mountain and, you know, you're going to get lost. So there's so many ways I think that we can support each other. But the TLDR of all of this, one, it's not your fault. Cue the like Robin Williams gif uh, if if it's not your fault. (laughs) But like, it's not your fault. Two, like having something and the pursuit of, you know, stability, even done imperfectly, is much better than not doing it all. Progress over perfection. And three, I think trying to navigate the system means finding people who do connect with you and do um, give you this information in a way that isn't going to shame you and that hopefully is going to uplift you. That is great because there are loads of people out there who say, I did at 25 and you should too. I'm proof no. that you can do it at 25. And you're not saying that at all. <laughs> no, the, contrarily. Like, I worked very, very hard. I also have a shit ton of privilege, right? And it's like, uh, that was one very specific thing that I wanted to make sure with this book is plenty mm-hmm. of, again, personal finance or career or business books are like, I did it, you can do it too. And the truth is, sometimes you're not going to be able to do it. Or at least, right. you know, her first 100K, which is our brand name, is is not, you know, Tori Dunlap's 100K or... Uh, you know, it's the idea that the first 100K can be whatever you want it to be. Maybe that's your first 100K debt paid off. Maybe that's your first 100K earned. Maybe that's net worth. Maybe that's saved. Maybe that's earned in a business. It's very flexible to you. And it doesn't have to be her first 100K in X years, right? Or X months. Mm-hmm. So we really try to make it as flexible as possible um, because personal finance is personal. Everybody's right. circumstances are very, very different. Yeah, it was so refreshing to see in your book, you essentially be like, my experience is anomalous. And I am very aware of that. But because I, you know, to further your metaphor, have gotten this far up the mountain, let me show you like less hazardous ways. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. 
Because a lot of a lot of the like self help books, finance books we've come across just are like, I did it, like, and I sold supplements, like, <laughs> yay, right, right, or I yeah got people to join an MLM and like, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just it's um it's very tricky, and and this is the biggest thing I struggled with with writing this book is I had like an existential crisis probably about nine months in, where mm. I was like okay, if somebody is honest to goodness living paycheck to paycheck, and I'm not talking the paycheck to paycheck where you like still have a Netflix account. I'm talking like truly like you don't have two pennies to rub together. Like how does this book help? And truthfully, it doesn't help much. And I think for me, it was like, then why write it at all? Right? Like if I'm one person Mm. trying to help people navigate this, and the truth is, is that the systemic issues the solution to those are going to help more people than learning a budgeting method, then like, why write this book at all? And again, the conclusion I came to is one, we know this advice helps. I've helped, you know, now 3 million people navigate the financial system, but also we have to start somewhere. (laughs) And like, if I can do something to help, even if it's just, you know, a handful of people, then hopefully, again, when you have that money and when you have stability, and I'm not talking Jeff Bezos money, I'm just talking like yeah. enough money to survive and to you know feel comfortable, then again, when, when you can have rest and ease and joy in your life, you are better equipped to fight against a system that leaves everybody oppressed. Yeah. So I want to I want to talk about the emotional side because yeah. you you touch on that in your book, which I love and I very much relate to, because even though I'm much older than 25, I feel like I'm just getting started on my path to like financial confidence, to sort of understanding where my money is and why it's in a Roth IRA, and like not just sort of floating along doing like what I'm supposed to be doing <laughs> at this age. Where where do we start? to like gain some confidence, to feel like we know what we're talking about? Like where, where should we start? Yeah. Um, again, to talk about like more traditional personal finance advice. And this was something I did. I started as a personal finance coach as I would work one-on-one with people. And I love actionable advice. Like I joke oh, that so I hate, yes, I we hate do too. inspiration porn. Yes. Like mm-hmm. I don't need you to hype me up and then leave me. I'm like, I, there's nothing worse than like going to a keynote at a conference and being like, cool, I'm going to change my life, but I have no idea the steps, how I'm going to do that. So what I was doing in private coaching is I was like getting right to like, okay, here's how we budget. Here's how we save money. Here's how we start investing. And then clients would be successful for a period of time, but they would you know come back to me and be like, oh, you know, I sabotaged myself and I don't know why. And mm. through my research and through working with literally hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of people, is that money is completely emotional and psychological. The way we manage our money has everything to do with our emotional state, with our past trauma, with how we view people with money in general. And Mm -hmm. in order to be financially confident, truly financially confident, and make that a lifestyle for the rest of your life, you have to start understanding what sort of perspectives, narratives have you believed about money. So we spent in the entire first chapter just talking about the emotions of money. It was the chapter right. that is the I spent the most time on. It's the longest in the book because I can't teach you how to budget. I can't teach you uh, how to negotiate for a raise until you understand that narratives like talking about money is taboo are perpetuated in order to keep you underpaid and overworked. And that yeah. the vast majority of your money habits are actually cemented by age seven. 
So the way you view money will largely be cemented by second grade unless you work to change it. So one of the practices I I talk about in the book that we could do live on air if you wanted to, and that anybody listening can do, is think about the first time you remember considering money, pondering money, thinking about money. We call it your money memory. And this typically is very illuminating in terms of how you view money now as an adult. For me, my first money memory, memory I was a theater kid. I'm a, I was a theater major. A lot of people are shocked to hear that. I majored in organization, communication, and theater in college, not finance, not business. <laughs> and so I wanted to go see Annie the Musical. They were doing a production of Annie. And my mom told me, okay, if you want to go, you have to save your money. And so I had an Altoids tin and I put like change I found on the street and um, like lemonade stand money. I was probably four or five years old. And, you know, that money memory was the first time Of course, I remember considering what the impact of money was. But in addition, I was taught, if you want something, you have to save money for it. And Mm. that's a great money memory. I think for a lot of people, they're not so great, right? It is the realization, oh, I remember when I realized we didn't have enough money or that I went over to a friend's house and they had way more money than we did or it Mm -hmm. seemed like they did. So if you guys are comfortable, I would actually love to hear your money memories. Um, I I actually talked on... um oh gosh, a few seasons back, one of my money memories. I I have a few early ones, like uh, being taken to open my first bank account back in the day where you didn't need a minimum. And I think I had $5 Mm. in my first bank account. I love it. But um, right around the same time was also um, my money memory of my mom not having enough money and asking if she could take the money from my, um, uh, uh, I guess piggy bank is what you would call it, but it was in the shape of a Tootsie Roll. And mm-hmm. I emptied out all of the pennies and dollars and so on that I'd saved up in there and gave it to her because she didn't have enough money. So wow. um, two sides of like one super responsible, look, I have a bank account. And then on the other hand, any money that I kept for myself in my piggy bank, I had to give to my mom. Yeah. Which, wow. Um, first of all, as a kid, I imagine was potentially disheartening of like, this is, you know, the money you had saved, but also... Uh, wow, I just think of your mom of, you know, what what Oof, had to yeah. have been her reality to, you know, request that of you. And yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No parent wants to borrow money from right. their four-year-old or no, five-year-old or upper-old. That was bank. Yeah. It's yeah. like right. heartbreaking. Right. Jolenta, I'll let you go ahead. My turn? Okay. So this one, I feel like it's sort of like a sw- – not a switcheroo, but like um, my – parents had me really young but also ended up getting money when I was like in middle school but my first money memory is of of them lacking where they really valued education so all the money they did have they put into sending me to like a bougie private school and so around five or something I uh, learned what my little ponies were Um, and all the girls had them in class and so when we were at the grocery store after school, I found one that was like super good. And I was like, I need this. Everyone has them. And my mom was like, no. And it just sort of escalated. And I started like freaking out more and more and being like, she just doesn't get how much I need it. And then finally she snapped and she's like, look, do you want milk or do you want a My Little Pony? Because we have to choose. And I was like, milk? And it's like, yeah. And I was like, I guess everyone deserves milk in their cereal more than I deserve a My Little Pony for sure. Hmm. So that was mine. (laughs) Well, and you can take these memories, right, and interpret them of, you know, how do they influence how I manage money now or how I view money in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 
thank you both for sharing. I know it's a vulnerable thing to share. And it's just, it's very, yeah, it's very illuminating. And it also gives us, again, a lot of grace and slack when we realize, you know, these sorts of narratives have potentially been ingrained in us for decades. It's really interesting to consider, yeah, like how those money memories affect your your everyday life, affect your your decisions. And also, you know, it shows the relationship that that your parents either may have had or may have forced to have with money and how that's potentially affected you as as we've grown up. Yeah, very much so. So you're saying be honest with yourself about those early money memories and how those early money memories may still affect your relationship with money and use that as your starting point um, before moving forward with all of the, should I save this much? Should I invest this much? Uh, Just know your financial psychology and history first. Yeah. And it's potentially kind of uncomfortable, right? It's like, it is like going to therapy where it's like, tell me about your parents, tell me about your childhood, (laughs) right? And you're like, I don't want to do that. But it, it is... It is very enlightening and it also allows you to give yourself grace of, oh, this has potentially been going on for decades of me trying to, you know, overcome this narrative that has been ingrained in me. It's surprising how like all of our memories are clearly like from a very young age where it's like, oh, shit. And I know my mom has the same thing of like her dad running around yelling about like, turn off the lights. Like, I'm not made of money. Like (laughs) that was when she was like four, probably. It's like, shit, we're coming from like a five-year-old perspective here. And like, we got to do some emotional work or like there are reasons behind our idiosyncrasies and like give ourselves some grace because it might come from like very real reactions to things and even our quote-unquote were like positive memories of money like I give mine and that was you know Mm -hmm. a a good life lesson learned which is like you want something save money the interesting thing is like even that potentially has negative consequences because when I was on the precipice of quitting my job to take her first 100k full-time my parents always chose the stable option and still like my parents my dad has always wanted to be an entrepreneur but I'm so thankful for his decisions, but he was like, nope, I need the 401k. I need the health insurance. I need to provide for my family. Mm -hmm. And so he never took that risk. And so when I was, you know, 25 trying to figure out if I could quit my job, one, I had my parents literally calling me, telling me, you need to do everything you have to, to keep this job and stay. And then I had, you know, the part of me that had learned from them, you pick the stable option, you pick the 401k and the health insurance and the consistent paycheck. And so it felt like such a huge risk for me to quit my job when, in fact, I had money in the bank, I had momentum, I had all of these things. And so it's just interesting even how our more, quote unquote, positive money memories can affect us and prevent us from making certain decisions as we age. Oh, absolutely. We are going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Tori, we're going to have more of you this time answering questions from our listeners. Stay with us. Mm -hmm. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. 
It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we are back with our special guest, Tori Dunlap. Tori is the author of Financial Feminist, Overcome the Patriarchy's Bullshit to Master Your Money and Build a Life You Love. Um, She also hosts the Financial Feminist podcast, which you should definitely check out. Yes, definitely do that. Now, Tori, now is the magic time when we have listener questions just for you. So many of our listeners are excited to have you here with us today. We received a ton of questions. And uh, the first one is from Haley. Yes. Haley says, I have over 100 k in student loan debt. How can I simultaneously pay it off, build an emergency fund, and save money when I'm making the median full-time income in America roughly 55 k a year? First of all, Haley, you are not alone. This is the number one question I get asked is like, I think I need an emergency fund, but also student loans, but also retirement question mark. Like these mm. are, it's it's a lot of like conflicting, competing priorities. And then you're also like, but how do I enjoy my life on a small salary? We have an entire right. chapter in the book about this, but I'll give you the TLDR. The first is that you need an emergency fund. And that actually comes before paying off any kind of debt. We do this for two reasons. One, it is preventative, right? You don't want to go into more debt trying to pay for an emergency. Mm. And two, uh, we believe in mental health and prioritizing mental health at her first 100K. And the truth is, is you're going to feel so much better having something in the bank should an emergency arise. The last thing you want to think about when, when shit hits the fan is like, how am I going to afford this? Or how am I going to navigate this financially? So first thing is your emergency fund. And I was talking about, you know, automating your savings. Even if it's just $20 a month, if that's all you can mm-hmm. do right now, set up that automatic transfer. One, again, it's going to accumulate without you even noticing. And two, even if you can't save a lot right now, it's going to start the habit of saving so that when you do increase your income or where you do have a windfall, the saving already feels natural to you. You're not waiting to the end of the month where you don't, you're like, where the hell did my money go in my bank account? Mm -hmm. You're doing that first and you're building that habit. So even again, even if it's just a small amount of money, that's hugely impactful. So rather than trying to figure out how do I navigate all of these things at once, we're just taking it like one bite at a time. So emergency fund, and then we want to proceed to like simultaneously saving for retirement while also paying down your lower interest debt. And I would typically define student loans as that lower interest. Mm -hmm. Um, So get your emergency fund first and then proceed to your other steps. And even if it's just, you know, $20, $50 a month, as much as you can do, set aside that automatic transfer and allow your money to work harder for you. 
All right. Next question is from Brianna. Brianna says, it seems that everyone my age, older Gen Z, is investing now, treating day trading like a game, but I'm terrified of it. My parents lost their shirts in the financial crash in 2007. Do I really need to invest? All my friends are telling me I'm missing out. Another great question. So investing is defined by different people in different ways. Mm. I'm going to say it so many times, but again, we walk through it in the book. The biggest thing that we have to keep in mind is that one of the narratives you've been told about investing is that it is scary or risky because the sexy investing, and I put like sexy in quotes, like the day trading, the stock picking, the buying and selling constantly is the stuff that gets the most press because it is sexy, right? It's the stuff we see on TikTok and Reddit. Oh, yeah. Look at that GameStop money everyone got, right? Right, (laughs) right, right. right. yeah. That is not how you build long-term wealth. That is how you lose money very quickly. (laughs) So (laughs) when you're thinking about day trading, I do not day trade. I do not recommend it. It is something I don't even know how to do because, frankly, it's not a smart financial decision. Investing, the very definition of the word invest, right, is to put time, energy, money into something for a Mm. lengthy amount, right? So rather than thinking of investing as a day-to-day thing or even month-to-month or even year-to-year, this is like years, if not decades. So we're looking for consistent, stable investments for the long term through typically something like a retirement account. Now, no one wants to talk about retirement accounts on TikTok because they're not sexy, but truthfully, that's how you build wealth is putting money in something like a 401k, which is an employer-sponsored retirement account, or an IRA, which is an individual retirement account. That's what IRA stands for. And then the biggest thing I see, the biggest mistake I see new investors make is putting money in that 401k or IRA and thinking it's invested. You have not Mm. actually invested that money until you put money into the account and then go purchase investments. An IRA or a 401k is not the investment itself. It's just the account that holds the investments. So when I personally am thinking about investing, I am opening, let's say, an IRA, and I am putting $1,000 in there. Again, pick, pick a certain amount that works for you. And then I'm purchasing something like an index fund. And again, more description in the book of what this is. But yeah. an index fund is a bunch of different companies in one place. It's like a basket that holds a bunch of different companies. So rather than day trading, right, buying a bunch of individual companies, selling them constantly, selling them sometimes by hour, like hour to hour, I am buying this index fund and holding it, meaning I'm not selling it, for decades. So investing is not inherently risky if you are well-diversified, meaning you don't have all of your eggs in one basket. Two, you're not chasing what the hottest thing is right now. And three, you're thinking about it in terms of a very long period of time. So Mm. investing, the sexy kind of investing, it just shouldn't be sexy. It should be stable, consistent, (laughs) and over that long period of time. I was just going to say, I feel like Brianna says it like in her question where it's like treating day trading like a game. Like, I feel like investing shouldn't be so fast and crazy like a like, you know, angry birds. And the other thing, too, to keep in mind is that you have not lost money by investing unless you sell. Just Mm. the same way you have not gained money unless you sell. It's kind of like buying a house, right? Like, 
as your house right. increases in value, you don't actually get that value unless you sell your house, right? Or it's like buying a Dior bag, right? The like mm-hmm. the value of that Dior bag doesn't actually actualize until you sell it or unless you sell it. So a lot of the like panic that's happening right now about like looming recession and stock market falling The truth is, is that it doesn't really matter if you're in this for a very long period of time, A, and B, you have not lost money unless you choose to sell. Then you've Mm -hmm. lost or gained money. Yeah. I wonder in Brianna's case if perhaps the crash happened at exactly the moment they were retiring. And and Mm. a lot of people of that age did lose their shirts who were yeah. totally in retirement at that Trying point. To cash so out and, I can see yeah. where that would be really scary. Yeah. There's a longer conversation about how to prevent that um, by slowly like taking money out of the stock market as you near retirement age, right? Mm. But it's definitely a scary thing. And again, this is why like it's like we planned it. Like it's emotional, <laughs> right? It's psychological. Right. I was going to say then it goes back to the psychology. Right. What happens yeah. is like if you feel money is scarce already and then you're like, I'm going to keep my money in a checking account because at least then I can see it. Well, what happens, of course, is that you're not building wealth that way. And if you've been Mm -hmm. told, oh, investing is just like the risky day trading that like is a full time job, you're like, I don't want to do that. I want to watch Timothy Chalamet YouTube compilations. And I'm like, (laughs) I I agree. Like, I don't have time for that shit. So it's like, I think that that is the balance, right? It's like viewing money in a different way and overcoming a lot of those narratives that exist. And that that my non-so-conspiracy conspiracy theory is that those narratives exist to keep you underpaid and overworked and to prevent right. you from building wealth. Because if you are being told by certain stock market, like bros, Wall Street chads, that investing oh, yeah. <laughs> is day trading and risky and you need to pay them a bunch of money to do it for you, you end up losing money or you end up paying them the money that you should be holding in your accounts. Now, right. just a follow-up question, not from a listener, but from me. Can you explain why long-term investing is the way to go? And I know you're going to mention compound interest. So if you could explain that to our listeners also. Yeah. So compound interest is simply when your interest earns interest, right? So the idea with investing is that you're putting a relatively small amount of money in and allowing that money to grow for you over, again, years, if not decades. So that original 100K at 25 we were talking about, I'm 28 now. So that 100K at 25, if I never contributed another penny, will be $1.6 million by the time I'm set to retire at 65. And that's because of compound interest. Now, compound interest works regardless of how much money you do or do not have and regardless of your age. So compound interest works when whether you're 18 or 88, whether you have $5 or $5,000, right? The idea, though, is that time is so much more important than the amount of money when it comes to investing. So this is why even if we can only invest a small amount of money, we want to start now rather than doing the like, oh, I'll figure it out next year or, oh, I don't have, you know, a couple thousand dollars to invest. So I'm just not going to invest at all. Time is way more important than the amount of money because, Kristen, of compound interest, right? Because of allowing your money to grow for you and the more time you give yourself, whether that is years, but hopefully decades, that is the way we build long-term consistent wealth because it does take that long. It takes that long Mm -hmm. to see growth because you do have years like 2022 where the stock market's down, but you also have years like 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018 where the stock market was going up. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm learning so much. To keep on the investing theme, I want to get to this question Natalia has. Uh, 
She says, I want to find something I can invest in when I have money and not invest in when I don't. And I want the ability to withdraw my money from this investment in the event of an emergency. Does this kind of investment exist? At the moment, I have savings lingering in my bank account. You should not be investing any money that is for emergencies. Your emergency fund needs to be what we call liquid, meaning you can access it like basically immediately, right? So I recommend what's called a high yield savings account. We have uh, our recommendation on our website for uh, a high yield savings account, but basically it's just like an everyday savings account, but it's going to earn you more interest. And that's where your emergency fund should live. If you are putting your emergency fund or your emergency savings in an investment, one, it's going to go up and down. It is. And two, you cannot pull your money out like in a day or next day. It's typically going to take a few days. Mm. So yeah, do not, that's like one of my hard and fast rules. Do not put your emergency savings in an investment. It should be in a high yield savings account. Now, if you're trying to figure out what to do with, uh, it sounds like maybe you have a lot of money in your checking account and you're like, okay, what do I do? Or in a savings account, three to six months of living expenses should be that emergency fund. If you want, you can do six to nine if you don't have any credit card debt. I personally have like a year emergency fund. One, because I'm a financial expert and like that just makes me feel secure. But two, I also own a business. And so mm, part of that mm-hmm. emergency fund is not just my own savings, but it's also like a nest egg for the business. So I would say three to six months is a good starter emergency fund. Everything else that you have in savings should go somewhere else. It should either be reassigned. Maybe you want to buy a house someday. Maybe that's going into like a down payment high yield savings account. Maybe that's going into a wedding high yield savings account or a kick-ass vacation high yield savings account. Or maybe it is being invested for the long term. But again, your emergency fund should not live in an investment. It should be in a high yield savings account. Mm, Good to know. All right. Jennifer has this question. I wrestle with ethical questions related to money and would love to hear Tori's take. The two big ones for me are how to think about the impact of consumption on climate change and financial Mm. inequality. The biggest thing I struggle with as well. I mean, the whole reason that we're doing the work that we do is to try to navigate a system that is already uh, corrupt and inequitable. Um, I mean, again, I come back to you cannot take care of other people if you're depleted. You cannot take care of other people if you are not putting your oxygen mask on first. So getting that emergency fund together, paying off the debt, starting to save for retirement, um, while, of course, spending money on kick-ass things that make present you happy, that is honestly your best form of protest as it stands. And then when you're taken care of, you get to take care of everybody else. In terms of navigating a system and trying to figure out like how to do the least harm, I mean, that's it, right? Is it's like you can't do everything. You can't figure out how to, you know, take care of everybody and everything all at once. You can only do your best. You navigate it with the least harm possible. So there's some people that pick like, okay, I am going to invest in the stock market, but only in ethical companies, right? Like maybe that's your thing. Mm. Or I am going to do everything I can to not shop at Amazon, right? Or I am going to ethically make as much money as I can so that when I have that money, I can distribute it to the organizations, the causes that I believe in. And really that's my camp, which is like, I'm going to make as much money as I can in an ethical, non-predatory, 
uh, way so that I can use that money as a tool and a resource for, for organizations and for causes I believe in. Um, but you kind of have to understand, again, resign yourself to the fact that you're not going to be able to make everything better. So picking a couple things that are your causes and then going really hard there, right? Maybe it's like, okay, when Christmas time rolls around, I'm only going to spend money on local businesses or women or BIPOC owned businesses, right? Um, and I think that is one really specific way that you can try to navigate the financial system while, you know, sticking to your values and while allowing your values to reflect your money. Um, And again, you've heard this, but there's this concept of voting with your dollars, right? And it's the idea that when you put a dollar out into the world, you, uh, you get to contribute to the change you want to see. And it's like, Sometimes you're going to have to buy something off of Amazon. That's going to happen, right? Sometimes that's, that's, that's okay and necessary. Um, but you have to decide, you know, what, where you want that dollar to go and the impact that dollar can have. And then again, allowing yourself grace when, when that isn't possible or when you do fuck up or when just things are murkier than you wish they were. Yes, yes. That reminds me of something Gretchen Rubin always says. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And um, also uh, something a listener once shared with us that I love, which is anything worth doing is worth doing badly. I mean, that's 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 this whole episode summed up, right? Is it's like progress over perfection. Um, this is an interesting question we got from Katie, who says, My husband earns four times my salary. This is partly because I cut back to working part-time after our daughter was born. He pays for the bulk of our household expenses, but I still find that I have way less than he does in my account at the end of the month. Because he already contributes so much, I feel bad having to ask for more to make ends meet. Do you have any advice for making this regular part of our life go a little smoother? Oh, I love this question. So it sounds like um, these two in a partnership are either completely separate finances, definitely some part separate. Um, first of all, this is to go on a quick tangent. This is one of my other hard and fast personal finance rules. You need to have some of your own separate money in a romantic relationship. You yeah. must have yep. some mm-hmm. of your own separate money. It doesn't have to be all right. The, I think the ideal that I teach is like a joint account and then separate accounts. But please do not fully combine your finances. I've seen this sour and get to the point where, you know, 99% of domestic violence cases have some sort of financial abuse tied to them. So that's the Mm -hmm. egregious version of this. But also just like... I've seen it. I saw it in my own parents' marriage when it dissolved after 32 years. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's so common. And it does... It resorted to like a hint of physical violence, but it's all that. It's... it's, It's bad. You don't want to be dependent. You need... And now my mom's number one rule is like have your own checking account. Yeah, even if it's just a small amount of money, right? And the other thing is too, like the more fun part of it is like your relationship will be uh, just, I think, more healthy if you don't have to consult each other on every single purchase you make, right? Like Mm -hmm. the big purchase is sure, but like you have your own separate money. Like my mom has her scrapbooking money and my dad has his golf money, right? And like like, they don't have to consult each other of like, oh, I want to go play around a golf at a nice golf course. Like that doesn't have to be a consultation. Um, so that's my aside. In terms of uh, this person's question, um, I think that one of the, the, my favorite strategies for managing your money and for getting more comfortable with financial conversations is what I call the money date. And if you are single, you can do this just with your money. I joke, you get a little intimate with your money and you go on a date with your money. And if you <laughs> are managing money with a partner, you're doing this with them. It's this idea of financial self-care. 
It is a designated time at least once a month where you're Mm. sitting down for like a half hour, hour, make it something you look forward to, get a glass bottle of wine, like a down comforter cocoon, like take out from your favorite restaurant and sit down and look at your money. Look at your credit card statements, look at your debt, look at your progress, because that's the other thing about money is that, um, yes, it's temporarily more comfortable to just like not look at it, but one, Mm. that doesn't help. And two, you cannot see progress unless you're actually looking for the progress. So you need to check in with yourself. If you're managing money with a partner, what you can do is you can ask a very simple but thoughtful question that should help unlock a lot of this, um, you know, these, these potential possibilities for you, which is how do we use money to build a life that we want? How do we use money as a tool to build the life that we want, right? Maybe that's, okay, I, I'm stressed about debt and I know you are too and I feel like it's impacting our marriage. How do we use money as a tool to eliminate that debt? Okay, we both love traveling together. You know, we we love that to build our relationship. And we also just, it's just an amazing bucket list activity. How do we use money as a tool to travel at least once a year internationally, right? Like you can ask that question as a single person or as a, as a partnership to figure out a, a lot of um, ways to unlock the, you know, the financial solutions to these issues. And again, it, it frames it from the perspective of, Again, money is a tool rather than money being the obstacle. The like, okay, I don't have enough money. I don't, you know, we don't get along when it comes to money. Instead, it's like, okay, money's just a tool. Money's here to aid uh, the health of this partnership and to, you know, hopefully again, give us a life that we both love and a partnership that feels healthy and, and fulfilling. So how do we use money as a tool to get there? And then keep checking in, make these non-negotiable money dates, like once a month, maybe that's once every two weeks if you want to do it more frequently. But this financial self-care time is very important because we're busy people. And I think in a lot of relationships, the financial conversations happen when like one of you is leaving for work. Or like right, one of you right. is like wrangling children. Out the door to the store. One of yeah. you is really upset about something and suddenly yelling about it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, true. No, it always happens a spur of the moment, like probably worst possible time. It's yeah. a performance review, self-care time for your money. And again, using it as as this this exciting opportunity to build a future rather than this thing that's preventing you from, from progressing. I love that reframing. It's a way to have the future that you want for yourself, yeah, the future that you dream of, obstacle. and the present. That's so great. All right, we're going to take one more quick break, but when we're back, we have one last question for Tori Dunlap. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we are back with our one last special question for Tori Dunlap. Tori, the name of your book and the name of your podcast is Financial Feminist. How would you define the term financial feminist? And is it something only female-identified people can be? I'll answer the second part because that's the easier answer. A feminist is anybody who believes in the equality of genders. So regardless of how you identify, whether you identify as a male, a female, non-binary, woman, man, anybody. A feminist is anybody who who believes in the equality of all genders. So... um, we predominantly work with women, but we have um, you know plenty of people who are not women who who follow us and get so much from our advice. In terms of how I define financial feminism, it, it's back to the concept that I've spent pretty much this entire interview talking about, which is <laughs> this idea of putting your own oxygen mask on first so that you can then help others. Um, if you uh, read the book, which I hope you do, it would just make my entire life. Um, it's a I, great book. Thank you. Thank you. It's going to make me cry. I'm, I've am i never worked harder on anything professionally. And this is just, I'm still, every interview I do, I'm like, holy shit, we wrote a book. Like, okay, cool. Um, so I'm it's honored if so, anybody It's reads so it. informative. Thank you. It's, thank you. It's thank you. great to look I, at. I, this like, wasn't even me trying to, trying to get no, you to plug it. I no, appreciate it. No, it's great. Um, I start and end the book with the same quote, which is, When you have all you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. And that is the definition for me, which is like, this book is the resource for you to give you everything that you might need, or at least give you some tools to get the things you need. And then rather than gatekeeping and keeping people out and hoarding that wealth, creating fences, it's this idea of building a longer table. And it's also not refurbish the table that already exists. It's this idea of building a new one because um, the table that exists is pretty wonky. It's got some like missing legs. A little short. Not everyone can sit there. The paint's chipping. It's a whole thing. So (laughs) that for me is the definition of financial feminism is standing in your power, navigating the financial system to the best of your ability, becoming financially confident yourself, and then when you're taking care of helping everybody else, building that longer table. Wow, that sounds like you just like summarized the entire ethos of buy the book. That's exactly what so Delonta and I try to do yeah. in our approach to the world and with our show. And we it. are so thankful to have somebody like you with us who is making this happen in the world every day. Uh, mm-hmm. Tori, can you tell our listeners how they can find more of you? We know they want more of you. So where can they get more of you? Truly, thank you for... for um, it's just your support and uh, advocating for this because this is a mission far beyond just me as an individual. So um, thank you. Uh, you can find me at herfirst100k.com, H-E-R-F-I-R-S-T-1-0-0-K.com. You can find the book Financial Feminist wherever you get your books. You can find the podcast Financial Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And I just appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for being here Such today. Such a joy we to loved have it. You. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for this bonus episode of By the Book. Huge thank you to our amazing production team at Stitcher, Nora Ritchie and Marcus Hom. Thanks also to Nate Wida, who composed our theme song, and to the Rizzos, who perform it. 
Please stay in touch. Our email address is kristenandjolenta at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at Jolenta G, at Kristen Meinzer, or at Buy the Book Pod. You can also follow us on Instagram at Buy the Book Pod. And don't forget to rate us and review us while you're listening right now. Look down at wherever you're playing this podcast. There's probably a way to hit like five stars and write like, fun show. Uh, it helps other people find the show. And they should definitely find this episode because Tori is amazing. And if you haven't already, tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth. Who doesn't love that? Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jolenta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Huge, huge thank you to our amazing production team at Stitcher, Norris, Richie. Norris, what is wrong with me? Norris, Chuck Norris, Richie? Richie? Yeah, Chuck Norris, Richie. Norris, Richie. Uh. Stitcher. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.